Judges 15, I'm going to begin in verse number 9. And it says, The Philistines came up, and they encamped in Judah, and they made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We've come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand, and he took it. And with it, he struck a thousand men. Just so you know, he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Verse 16, Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of these uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakeri. It is at this. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, twenty years. All right. So. On these Wednesday nights when we're studying the life of Samson, the last thing I want to do is give you a boring history lesson into the time of the judges in the life of corporate Israel in the Old Testament. That's really not what we're doing here. Um, I'm glad that we're objectively gaining knowledge about the life of Samson in the book of Judges. That's important. Knowledge is important. But why do we learn? Why do we study? Why do we need to know the Bible? Is it simply to accumulate information so we can chat with each other across coffee about just the, the, the info, the data, the doctrine of the Bible? Of course not. The reason why we study the scriptures, we do it privately, we do it together, is so that we might enter in more deeply into our relationship with the Lord. It is ultimately, as Gabe has already said as he prayed tonight, it is really that Jesus is the end of everything. That is the reason that we study the Bible, not simply to gain knowledge, not so we're better equipped for debate, not so that we'll just know the facts and the historical elements about uh, the, the, the Christian and Judeo-Christian narrative. Friends, the reason why we study the scriptures is because God speaks to us through them. That the Lord speaks directly into our spirit. Yes, he uses the mind, he uses our, our, our rational faculties, but ultimately this book is, is not a book of information. It's been said before, it's a book of transformation. And so the more that we read it, study it, believe it, and obey it, 
the more we are going to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's where your joy is. That's where your purpose is. That's where your power is. Everything ties back in to the throne room, into the place where we are abiding in the presence of the Almighty. And so when we take an Old Testament text like this, We've got to recognize that God's not just breathing history to us. He wants us to recognize the spiritual elements that continue from that point in the days of the judges and are impacting your life right now. There's something to actually learn about how we're living right now through a simple narrative in the life of Samson. And when we're thinking about this particular passage tonight, where my heart goes to is this issue of warfare, this issue of combat, this issue, this reality that all believers have entered into a war. We didn't start it, but we participated in it. We actually used to be on the other side fighting against God by our sins, our trespasses, and our transgressions. But God in his mercy pardoned us, took us out of the kingdom of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, and now we fight against that old kingdom that we used to be a part of. You say, well, Jeff, that's not my deal, man. I'm not, I'm not really into warfare. Well, you better be. You, you better be, because the enemy loves nothing better than to find a believer who doesn't believe that she or he is engaged in warfare, because that means you're not ready to fight. And, and often, I, I can say this about my own ministry up until about five years ago, I was not equipping, I was not really speaking to these things in a way that helped the people I was shepherding be prepared for the battle. So when we're looking at Samson versus the Philistines, we're actually also looking at us versus the devil and every demon that has aligned itself with him. And so when we're seeing the tactics that we see in this passage of Scripture, I also want to apply them immediately to your life and mine. So let's begin up in verse 9, 10, and 11. And let's look at this. We see in those verses an enemy that is enraged and determined. We're talking about the Philistines historically, but I'm going to make application to Satan and his demons. So this is the way the enemy operates in Judges chapter 15, and this is the way the enemy operates against your life and my life today. First of all, there's an intentional advance. Look in verse number 9, what it says about the Philistines. It says, they came up, and they encamped in Judah, and they made a raid on Lehi. So remember, the Philistines are the bad guys. They have been oppressing and dominating the God's people. The seed of Abraham, Israel, they've been dominating them for decade after decade after decade. And now Samson has gone as the deliverer of Israel, and he's kind of fighting guerrilla warfare. He's sneaking in, he's doing things, he's killed a few people, he's burned down some fields, but he's enraged the enemy. And so now the enemy is not one to sit back defensively. The enemy goes on the offense, and they come up to the territory where things are normally calm, but now they're coming up in their military encampments, and they've got one, one desire on their heart they want to find Samson and they want to kill him so when the Philistines come up it is very obvious to everybody in that territory that the enemy is trying to encroach upon what is normally calm territory now before moving on from that I'm just going to make a very simple application that some of you need to begin to believe the enemy is after you he wants to steal from you kill you destroy you as a believer, he has no claims on your soul, but that does not mean he's disinterested in you because you are one among the only beings on earth that can actually do what the enemy hates most of all. What is that? To bring glory to God Almighty. 
And so when the enemy, ultimately the enemy hates God being glorified. You remember, that's what he wanted for himself. He wanted to ascend above the throne of God. He wanted the throne of God and the worship of God for himself. That's what got him evicted out of heaven when Lucifer was cast out. He came down to the earth and has been seeking to destroy anything that brings God glory ever since then. So when you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you became a traitor to the kingdom of darkness. You are the spiritual Benedict Arnold to the kingdom of darkness because you, you abandoned that and were redeemed and brought into the kingdom of light. And now you bear that light. You bear that witness. You have that Savior living inside of you. So Satan hates you. He's not irritated with you. He hates you. And he has no other agenda than to try. It's diabolical. It's insane. It's maniacal. All he wants to do is to destroy every single thing on earth that brings God glory. And so he is constantly strategizing primarily against the church because we're the only thing outside of nature and the natural creation, but we're the only ones that intentionally bring God glory. And he hates that. And you, you are the church. And so when you sing, he hates that. When you give, he hates that. When you serve, he hates that. When you dare bring your children under the sound of the gospel, he hates that because now it's moving from one generation into the next generation. And so what does he do? He does not sit by and feel poorly for himself. He doesn't pout. He doesn't whine. He strategizes and he intentionally advances so that he can do whatever he can do to dim the light in your life to distract you from who you are in Christ, to mess with your head about your identity in Jesus so that you never live up to your identity in Jesus. One of the things that we need to know is the devil knows who we are in Christ better than we know who we are in Christ. And so he fights that any way that he can, and it's pictured here by the Philistines coming up into territory that normally they, they just kind of left alone. So in verse number 10, we find out that the enemy, the Philistines, had a clear agenda. The men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Now, you've got to remember who Samson is to the Philistines because everybody in Israel at that time was cooperating with the enemy. The Philistines had come in and they had dominated the landscape for at least four decades. And so everybody in the land would bow to Philistine power, authority, and oppression. Nobody was bucking the system except this one guy named Samson, and he was calling, causing holy terror to enter into the Philistines. So what did they do? They came up to target and deal with the threat. They came up to say, we are going to exterminate the only thing that threatens us. Where is the one who burned down our fields? Where is the one that slew uh, a 30 of our men on the seacoast earlier when uh, he stole their garments? Where, where is this Samson that we're tired of dealing with? We have come up to bind him. It's very picturesque language because that's what the enemy likes to do. The enemy, have you ever watched one of those nature shows where it's got either a lion or a leopard or a cheetah out in the field and there you see that gazelle out there and you know what's about to happen. We've all seen that, but isn't it kind of, it's, it's awe striking, but it's also kind of hard to watch. Sometimes the predator will play with the prey before he kills it. And so the enemy doesn't just want to bind Samson and kill Samson. The enemy wants to use Samson as a trophy when they capture him. They want to bring him into captivity before they destroy him. 
It's the way the enemy works too because one might think, well, if the devil really hates us and wants to exterminate us, why doesn't he just find us in our most vulnerable moment and boom, we're dead and he's done with it? Because that's not all he wants to do. He, he actually wants to take away any glory that you've previously brought to God by bringing humiliation on you and degradation on you. He wants you to fall. He doesn't want you to just die. He wants you to be bound up in whatever he chooses to bind you up in because he's going to get you eventually according to his thinking. And so what he would like to do prior to that is he'd like to kind of have you be his prisoner for a little bit before he executes you. And friends, we've seen that. Y'all have got to listen. Listen to the Spirit on this thing. You, you've got to hear this because we've seen this. If we'll recognize the activity, when, when we recognize that when, when somebody burns and crashes and burns, it didn't usually happen in a moment. It happened as they started slowly giving territory away to the enemy and eventually they became bound by the enemy and then eventually the bound one by the enemy becomes the de destroyed one by the enemy. And that's just the way the devil operates. He's like that cheetah out in the, in the uh, African plains who wants to toy a little bit with its prey. So they said, we've come up to get Samson because he's really the only threat that we're having to deal with. Now, here's where it gets kind of discouraging because most of these messages on the life of Samson are like two-thirds discouragement and always try to end on a high encouragement note. But here we go into the discouragement. Look at verse number 11 and let the church be instructed on this. Look at the discouraging accusation. 3,000 men of Judah, of Judah, Israelites, Hebrews, went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And Samson answers and he says, as they did to me, so I've done to them. I, I want you to get this. So 3,000 of Samson's own men, his own countrymen, his, his people, and he's the leader. They come up to him and they're mad at him because he is the only one resisting the enemy. And because he's resisting the enemy, the enemy's coming up and now their, their sellout status quo uh, is, is now getting interrupted. They're actually upset with the one guy who's trying to fight the enemy to the extent that they, listen to their, their confession. Don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? Listen to that confession. And this, this is the seed of Abraham. These are the people of the covenant. These are the only people that have any right on planet earth to say we will not be defeated because God Almighty is on our side. We are the people of Yahweh. We are the people of Jehovah. We are the people of Abraham. We are the people of the covenant. And they're not saying that. They're just saying, oh, Moses, I mean, uh, uh, whoever, Samson. <laughs> Started thinking of the law and the covenant and ended up Brother Moses for a minute. Samson, why in the world have you, have you disrupted us? You, you're upsetting the enemy. And what's amazing to me in this is they got 3,000 guys together. You got 3,000 guys together. Why don't you ask Samson to lead you in battle against the Philistines instead of turning on your leader? Three, all of the effort, all of the organization, all of the ability, all of the timing, prepared their speech, not to go after the enemy, but to do infighting and come against Samson. 
And so the accusation from Samson, and by the way, just for all of you that have been here through this whole series, you know I've been very realistic about Samson's weaknesses. You actually start seeing in this passage, he's starting to show something we haven't seen before. Because the Samson of chapter 14 would have tore into all 3,000 of those men. But there's something in him where he doesn't want to use his superhuman, supernatural, God-given strength and ability to fight his own people. So he tempers himself. He's actually displaying some fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. By the way, does this remind you of anybody, what Samson's going through? Reminds me of the Son of God. The one who came to destroy the works of the devil. The one who came to bring the kingdom. The one who did all those things that always pleased the Father. The one who was righteous and holy and good and right. Samson wasn't those things, but Samson was the appointed leader who was simply trying to defeat the enemy. But as Samson's own countrymen rejected him, Jesus' own countrymen rejected him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as who did receive him, to them gave he the authority to become the children of God. But they rejected Jesus. And they took and bound Jesus. And ultimately they nailed Jesus on a cross and all of that human effort. If only they had just believed and recognized that the Messiah was there who could put down the devil and put down Rome and, Rome and, just, uh, and bring the glory back to Israel. But much like Jesus Christ, Samson was experiencing the pain of being rejected and even betrayed by his own countrymen. This is the way that the enemy works, by the way. Before I move on to the next point, I, I'm, I'm making you a promise here. Please don't think you're the exception of the rule because that makes you incredibly vulnerable. The enemy has a strategy for your life. You, I promise you, as a, as a born-again child of God, he wants you to be aborted. He wants to, he never wants you to get out of the womb. He never wants you to get into the world. He never wants you to step into the anointing. He just is fighting you. And listen, all we know is that a third of the angels rebelled with Satan. We don't know how many there are, but I can tell you, however many there are, they never take a vacation. They never take a day off. They never get nicer. They never mellow. They are as tenacious in this hour as they have ever been. And there might even be some scriptural indication that as time gets closer to the end, that the enemy actually gets more and more furious because he knows his time is short. And so we're living in a day where Christians are, I believe, this is my personal opinion, you don't have to agree with me, but I believe we're probably more vulnerable today than we have ever been because we have this churchified anesthesia that is putting us to sleep with messages that are sugary and syrupy and sappy and quick and clever and make everybody feel awesome, but don't prepare us for the attack of the enemy. And so when we're thinking about this, this is the way I think about it, man. I, I think about my wife, my daughter, and my son. And I think I've seen the enemy work against my wife, my daughter, and son. Nobody's got to convince me. I know it's him, but I'm not afraid of him. I'm not ready to give up. I'm not ready to cry foul. I'm not asking God to make me immune from it. The only way you can be immune from the attacks of the devil is to start right now refusing ever to bring God glory again. And the devil will leave you alone because you're actually cooperating with him. And so what we see here is the enemy is aggressive. Coming into your territory, not waiting until you stumble into his, but coming into yours. And then sometimes the enemy will even work 
through other people in the family of God, much like Samson's own countrymen. You know, friends, you've got to have your armor on. When people say things and do things and they act in ways that have caught you off guard, when they, they betray you or abandon you or walk away or say things against you, you don't have time to have a pity party. You've got to recognize, well, if that person's a child of God, then God has the capability to straighten them out, but I, I don't have the capacity in my spirit to dedicate any kind of acreage in my heart to bitterness against that person. So what do we do? Well, we don't help the devil fight against us. We fight against him. So go down into verses 12, 13, and the beginning of verse number 14. So watch Samson here. It's kind of subtle. It's the only time in all of Samson's testimony that he's subtle, but I call this a strategy of humility and shrewdness. Now, this is interesting to me. First of all, Samson immediately trusts God with adversity. In verse number 12, so the Israelites, his countrymen say to him, Samson, we've come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. Immediately, Samson is starting to have his spiritual gears moving in the right direction. He knows he can probably take these 3,000 men. He knows he can probably do it, but he's not real sure if God would give him the power to do that because fighting your brethren is inconsistent with the heart of God. And so Samson just says, as long as they don't attack me, I'm going to cooperate with the plan. But, but just the, the words, I think of these 3,000 men, and I, I don't feel good about these guys. I, I hate cowardice. You know, I, I can deal with stupidity. I can deal with ignorance. I can deal with a lot of things, but cowardice? And if I can risk sounding like a sexist for a moment, cowardly men make me feel the worst out of anybody that's cowardly. I think, remember what C.S. Lewis called them, where are the men with chests? You know, where, where are the men with, with brave hearts? Where, where are the men who, who recognize and can discern the seasons and know what their, their country ought to do and their people ought to do? These guys, they're actually binding the, one that can, the only one that can help them. Friends, we, we, we can actually do that same thing in the Spirit. We, when we quench the Spirit and we grieve the Spirit, we're binding our heavenly Samson. We're binding the one who can set us free. We're binding the one who can defend us. We're binding the one who can lead us. We're binding the one who can deliver us. And so when they came up, they're actually tying the hands of the one who could free them. But Samson doesn't say a word. He just says, for their own good, don't attack me, and they agreed to do it. So look at what they say. They agree to the plan in verse number 13. He said, swear to me that you won't attack me yourselves. And they said, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. That's such a stinking cop-out. They're going to give them to the Philistines, but they're, they're like, well, we didn't kill them. We, we, yeah, you actually did. You're an accessory to murder if this thing goes the way it should have gone in the natural. But they had a clean conscience because, well, technically, none of us struck Samson. But imagine that. Imagine selling out your brother to the enemy so that you could maintain your status quo, suppressed, oppressed position in life. I, I just don't get that, man. And I don't want to get it. And I don't want you to get it either. I do believe, if I can get a little prophetic for a moment here, 
Um, I'm not even questioning this in my spirit anymore. It's not an if, it is a when for me. When will this happen? We are going to encounter days in the church in the United States of America where the prophetic words of Jesus Christ, who was not only the Son of Man and the Son of God, but he was also the prophet, one like Moses that was prophesied, greater than Moses who came. And this is what he said. He said that there's going to be a time where households will be pitted against each other for the sake of Jesus Christ, where in-laws will turn against in-laws, where children will turn against parents, parents against children, brother against brother. And it's not simply going to be spats and fights and little blow-ups it's going to be. It's literally going to be where people betray each other in their own families when the reign of the Antichrist hits planet Earth and there are going to be people that will literally betray their family and betray Christians, selling them out so that they can be dealt with by the enemy. That's in the Word of God. And brothers and sisters, we, we are not in a position, I'm, maybe you are, maybe I am, but I'm talking we, the church, Big C Church in America, we are not currently in a position to endure any level of suffering, much less that level. Do you know what's going to happen? Man, even got some sound effects. Thank you, Lord. The thunder's rolling. That's awesome. I don't know when, and I don't know how it's all going to play out. But I do know this, it's very clear in Scripture, that there will be an amassing of the forces of evil to come against the church of Jesus Christ. And it will happen before the official tribulation and great tribulation. I'm talking about before we get there, the birth pangs are going to start. And most Christians are, are existing in a mental Christianity where they know spiritual data, but their hearts haven't been transformed where they haven't died yet. I said, Jeff, what are you talking about? I'm talking about dying to yourself, dying to this world, dying to lesser loyalties, and recognizing that if you're not dead first, you're going to have a hard time not giving in to avoid death then. And, just, and so one of the reasons we've got to think about this warfare is because if we don't recognize it now, when it really hits, we're going to be caught off guard. We're going to be sleeping. There's not going to be any oil in our lamps. And so when we're looking at I know we're talking about Samson, but I'm going back and forth between him and us. They agreed to turn him over to the enemy and wash their hands of it. That's how addicted they were to maintaining their comfort zones and their absolute loss of freedom. They had no freedom, but they had learned to live as captives of the Philistines and they had found a manageable status quo where they knew what was going to happen every single day. And as long as the Philistines didn't start chopping off heads, they could live with it. Is that the destiny of the people of God? Are we supposed to be content being captive to anything? Are we supposed to just kind of wink at any kind of oppression? So instead of getting whiny when the devil comes against us, we ought to get mad. We ought to go ahead and step out into the authority that we have in the authority in the name of Jesus Christ, in the authority of his blood, and his peerless, matchless throne, where he sits and intercedes for us daily. But instead, we crumble and we wilt and we whine and we cry over the stupidest things. I, I can feel it, man. I'm about to abandon all decorum because I'm, I'm going to go on a sanctified rant. We can't afford to be whining and crying and quibbling and fighting and distressing over stuff that is not going to matter. If it's not going to matter then, why are we making it matter now? And we've got to find out what does matter. Listen, if we're going to get upset over stuff, why don't we get upset over the right stuff? 
Like I'm sick of seeing teenage girls get pregnant because nobody's caring for them in the proper way. I'm sick of seeing teenage suicide. I'm tired of seeing people walk away from their spouses and just abandon them and their kids. I'm tired of that. That's what makes me mad. It's not just human. It's the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. He got there before we did or he got there when we weren't looking. And so we were not mad at the right things. We're not mad at the prayerlessness of the church. We're not mad at the fact that most Christians don't invest in the Great Commission with their finances nor their time. We're not upset about that. But we'll get upset over the stupid stuff that is happening in the kingdom and in our churches. And nobody sheds a tear over the stuff that really matters. These guys, these pansies, they... They turned their deliverer over to the enemy. A bunch of Judases. Verse 13 at the end of it. It looks bleak. Outwardly, Samson, he looked doomed. So they bound him. He let them. So much like Jesus in that, by the way. Just as a lamb being led to the slaughter. When he was reviled, he did not revile. He just let them do it. So Samson, they bound him with two new ropes... And they brought him up from the rock where he was kind of hanging out. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. We don't really get it because that's not really kind of our battle scene anymore. We fight with tanks and we fight with torpedoes. But it's very common, even now in different parts of the world, less industrialized places, that when when a captive is brought forth, that the entire opposing army begins to shout and lift their voices. Different cultures have different ways where their warriors will cry out a victory cry, and it is meant to break and shame and intimidate the enemy when he hears thousands of voices calling out in glee and dominance over that that one who has now become captive. So Samson's going up. He's got his, his arms tied. And I don't know, man. I mean, I really don't know. I'm kind of 50-50. Did he know what God was about to do? Or did he not know what God was about to do? I really don't know what he knew. But as far as the outward appearance, he, he looked doomed. It doesn't look good when you've got thousands of guys that are shouting and rejoicing because they have their captive. What kills me all the more is the Philistines didn't even have to go up there and get them themselves. That literally some of his own people brought and deposited him there. And so they're going after it. So this is about as bad as it looks for Samson. But it's only because God hasn't shown up on the scene in power yet. He's about to do that in the next few verses. So here we go again. Here comes Samson's anointing. Here it comes again. It's the Holy Spirit's anointing, but it's, it comes on Samson. And this is what I love seeing. So there's an anointing here that meets the need. Very simply put, in the end of verse 14, God came to Samson. God shows up. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. Come on. (laughs) I, I just, I love the Lord. Samson, every single one of your friends abandoned you and betrayed you but I'm still here. Samson, they all turned you over to death, but I'm about to make you an instrument of death against all of these wicked, godless Philistines. Samson, 
You willingly submitted to the process, and I'm glad you did because all I need is you, and I'm about to do something. Now, notice the supernatural element. Please remember, let's always read our Bible, not as fiction, not as necessarily, you know, trying to um, embellish the details. This is what the Scripture said, that when the Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson, that's the same Holy Spirit that lives in you, by the way, if you're saved. Same exact Holy Spirit. There's not an Old Testament Spirit and a New Testament Spirit. Same person of the Godhead. He lives inside of you. He is divine. He is a person. He's not a force. He's not an it. He is the third person of the Godhead, equal in nature and equal in essence as Jesus Christ and God the Father. And that Holy Spirit rush upon Samson. Hit When it hits him, there is some kind of heat involved. I studied it out in the Hebrew. This is not figurative language. The heat hits Samson and his ropes catch fire, yet he doesn't get burned, and they fall off his hands. They literally melt off his hands. They tied him up with two new ropes, and when the Holy Spirit hits him, there's such energy and force and power from heaven that the, the, the natural things that bound him melt off. By the way, just I, I got to preach this for a second. When, when you walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the thing that used to have you bound falls off of you. You did not hear me. When, when you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the things that would normally bind you fall off of you. You don't even have to always work at it. I'll testify, man, when I got saved, I was on a 10-year drinking binge when I got saved and drugs and all of that. And I got saved, and it, was, uh, it, was just, it wasn't dramatic or anything, but I'm going to tell you, when I woke up after for 10 years of going to Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholic Anonymous, rehab at Kennestone Hospital, I did all of that stuff, and none of it worked. Why? Because none of those things could break the chains that were on me. But on the day where I said, Jesus, I surrender to you, God, here's my life, I woke up that night, I got up that night out of bed and all of it was gone it's never come back that's what he does whether it's drugs or alcohol or a bad attitude or gossip or smoking or whatever I'm not going to go into a list of a bunch of uh, sins but I'm just telling you he's greater than all of them so the spirit hit Samson rushed on him you know I I don't know if he's ever rushed on me like that before. I mean, I don't know, I don't know exactly what that means, but it's, it sounds intense. Now, I've been filled. I've been rocked. Maybe we say it rocked. Maybe that's our, sometimes we say wrecked. I don't know, but I'm going to tell you something. He wants every single one of the saints of God to experience his presence and power on this side of heaven. It is not for the elite. It's not a denominational thing. It's not, it's not for the, you know, uber charismatic, outgoing, flamboyant, kind of flashy kind of Christian. It's not. Because when the Spirit rushes upon you, he's typically going to enhance whatever he's already given you for the purpose of not for you feeling cool and t- spine tingly and all of that. That may happen. But the purpose is that whatever he does when he rushes upon you resounds in glory going back up to the Son of God. And so that's why we need to be spirit-filled. Now, forgive me, I'll just, I'll just hit this real quick, because a lot of people think, okay, I need to get full of spirit so I can speak in tongues. I really want to speak in tongues. My friends, listen. Oh, I, I don't want to sound critical, but I already have, so I might as well continue. So, There's a lot of people that talk in tongues that do not live spirit-filled lives. I have met some people that talk in tongues, and man, outside of the prayer meeting or the church service, they're downright carnal. 
So speaking in tongues is not the evidence of some great arrival in the kingdom. Uh, let me tell you, when you know you're walking in the Spirit is when you're walking in love. You're walking in truth. You're walking in grace. You are walking in victory. You're walking with a submissive and a sacrificial heart, and you're going to be walking in obedience. And remember, it's the Holy Spirit, so you're going to be walking in holiness too. Now, Samson's a work in progress, and right now he's got some Philistines to kill. So all the Lord was wanting to do in this encounter was to come in where his friends had abandoned him and to say to Samson, Samson, I have not left you. So go down into verse number 15. Samson has now have his, he's got his hands free, and we now see this principle in warfare. God uses the ordinary and the unimpressive. Tell your ego to be dismissed in the name of Jesus because if, if, if you're going to fight the fights that we need to win in the spirit, ego is not going to help you. It's going to hurt you. The Bible says that he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and with it he struck. The Hebrew word means to not only smite or strike but to stab and to pierce. He killed him. He killed a thousand enemies in one sitting. Now, I want to talk about the, the donkey's jawbone because this is just me. If God's going to kind of put me in a place of warfare and I got a thousand guys standing out there, I want something a little more than a jawbone. <laughs> I want some grenades. I, I want a flamethrower. Um, I need something more than a jawbone. That's the way the natural man thinks. Samson didn't even think about it. My guess is that Samson gets hit with the Holy Spirit. His, his hands are free. He looks down. He, he grabbed the first thing he saw. And it says it was a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Uh, the reason why that's important is because a recently deceased animal, when it decays, that, that bone will still have the stoutness of the marrow in it. A dry, brittle bone would have broken in warfare. So he takes this thing, and I want you to remember, I mean, do you believe your Bible? You believe it? I believe my Bible. A thousand men. A thousand I'm looking across the room, man, when all the kids were in here, we had a few hundred people in here tonight, um, I might get through about two of you, and then I'm dead meat, I'm gone, I'm doomed, that's it. He killed a thousand men, so it's not only strength, if I can, let's use our sanctified reasoning, our imagination here, he's also moving at a superhuman speed. I mean, you've seen, some of us in the room are old enough to remember Steve Austin, right who was he come on the bionic man the six million dollar man and it was so cool and it was so cheesy back in the 70s they had terrible sound effects but Steve Austin when he'd start going he'd just I mean flying doing all this stuff then they had the bionic woman and then they tried the bionic dog and that failed after one season but the, the, but moving in that kind of rapid motion that's Samson with no bionics just the Holy Spirit and he killed a thousand men. The reason why I call this God's usage of the ordinary and the unimpressive is because he did it all with a bone. Let me give you this. That bone in the hand of Samson was a deadly sufficient weapon. You are that bone in the hand of God. 
He is, it's, it's not you. It's whose hand you're in. It's the one holding you. It's the one using you. It's the one aiming you and thrusting you and directing you and, and however God wants to use. Let me just give you some New Testament on this. We haven't, we haven't gone over these verses while. I'm just going to read them. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 25 through 29. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you came from noble birth. But God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing those things that are. Why? So, Verse 29, so that no human being might ever boast in the presence of God. God prefers to use the unimpressive. And I love that because I'm going to be honest with you. Um, Really, none of us are impressive. Now, I see you in your zone sometimes, and you're doing things that I probably will never get to do, and I'm blessed and everything, but in the grand scheme of the world's view, a bunch of people sitting in a church on Wednesday night in Lawrenceville, we're not impressive as far as the world's concerned. But do you know what? In the hand of God, you're an enemy slayer. In the hand of God, you're a territory reclaimer. In the hand of God, you're a family defender. In the hand of God, you're a gospel advancer. In the hand of God, you're a kingdom financer. In the hand of God, you're a missionary. In the hand of God, you're, a, you're, a, you're a, a, an intercessor. In, in the hand of God, you are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ when you make a visit to a home of somebody that nobody else is wanting to visit or see. You see, in the hand of God, the unimpressive becomes very holy and, the, and becomes very, very useful in the kingdom. And so if you're, if you're not in your prime anymore, in the hand of God, you have value and you have worth. If you've never found your purpose before, let me just tell you, do, do you think that if God can get Samson to use a jawbone, don't you think God Almighty who lives inside of you can use you for something glorious? Listen, our egos are ridiculous. We walk around down here strutting. We try to live life with a bunch of polish on it. And all it would take is one glimpse of Gabriel and we'd we need a change of underpants, amen. I'm just uh, sorry, that was rude. But, well, I mean, ultimately, we think we're something. And, and, and friends, listen, it's such a better life when you just don't try to strut anymore. And just acknowledge what you are. Look, I'm 5'7", I'm pudgy, I'm losing my hair, I'm, I'm midlife, I'm almost 50. You know what, I'm, my cool days are over. That's all right. I don't even know if I was cool when I was cool. But I know I'm not cool now. It's okay. I don't need to be impressive. But I, I want to be authentic. And I want to be a jawbone in an omnipotent hand because I still got some work to do down here. Amen? So he kills all these guys, verses 16 and 17. That moment became a memorial. Samson said, this is so funny. He's just a weird dude. He, he, he's killed all these guys and he writes a two-line poem. With the jawbone of a donkey, this is in poetic configuration. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. And then I guess he was out of breath and he didn't finish the poem. But that was, that's, that's what he wrote, but he made a memorial. So when the story gets out, verse 17 says, as soon as he had finished speaking, he throws away the jawbone out of his hand. And here's a footnote. That place was called Ramoth-Lehi or Ramoth-Lehi, and it means the hill of the jawbone. 
So in that territory, from that point forward, anybody that walked by that territory remembered what God did through Samson. And they remembered how he did it through a simple little jawbone that Samson reached out and grabbed and God did a great thing with him. Listen, before you leave earth, you don't have to make a global memorial with your life, but leave an empty space when you leave this earth. There needs to be somebody that misses us. Not because, you know, we, we're desperate for attention, but because we brought value to our relationships. We brought value to our community. We brought value to the kingdom. That we didn't just sit around and watch other people, you know, sacrificing and, and surrendering and doing all that they do to bring value into their generation, but we actually were doing it too. And listen, it's not hard. I'm telling you, it's such a love-starved world and such a graceless world and such a merciless world that if we will just operate in those three things intentionally in a small sphere of influence, you'll have a memorial on your life. People will remember. And, and if we're doing it rightly, we'll have opportunity to say, you know, it's really not me. It's, it's Jesus. I have a king living inside of me. And I want to tell you about this king. Listen, we just got to get away from this addiction to believing it has to be, you know, star-studded to be significant. It doesn't have to be neon to make a lasting difference. It doesn't even have to be big. You know, most of us aren't going to be used in a globally big way. But good night alive, what about the person across the street? What about the people in our family? What about the people we're doing life with? I want to leave a memorial. And so the only way I'm guaranteed of that is to make a difference in the day that I've got, and that was today. Tomorrow, if we wake up, let's do the same thing. So I'm going to finish right here, verses 18 through 20. Here's Samson's opportunity to leave the glory with God. This is the first time he's won a victory, and he wasn't a glory hog. This is actually a battle that he didn't fight for himself. He's still struggling with himself a little bit, but he is, he's recognizing that there is a much bigger picture. He starts stepping into his God-given destiny. Look at verse 18. Um, apart from God, Samson recognized he knew his weakness. As soon as the Holy Spirit's off of him, as soon as all the men are dead, he writes his little poem, he says it, and then it says this, and he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord. I think this is the first or the second time in the whole Samson story that he prayed. He called upon the Lord, and he said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Notice who he's given the glory to. You did this, Lord. I'm your servant. Samson's never said stuff like that before. He's learning. He's growing. And he says, <laughs> then he, he kind of whines a little bit. And he says, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? You know, Samson, you're doing good there for a second. You kind of faltered at the end. It's like, you know, you ran 99 yards and fumbled on the one-yard line. But that's okay. You picked it back up, and he gets in the end zone here. He says, he says the Lord, he's like, you did all of this, but I'm out here in the middle of the wilderness. I just killed a thousand people. There's two heaps of them over there, heap upon heap. And I'm going to die out here because I don't have any water. I, I think it's so awesome of the Lord. Man, I feel like this is going to land somewhere tonight, this statement. It's good of the Lord when he's training us to not let us soak in the, our own juices of our latest victory, but to show us our humanity and our weakness. Samson just did something nobody else had ever done, 
But before he could write a longer poem about it, God just lets him recognize, I'm thirsty. Samson can't even save his own life. And so he is once again immediately dependent upon God. I don't know who it was that said it. It was some smart Christian somewhere, but it said something to the effect of, um, God can trust almost most people with difficulty and trouble, but it's the rare people he can trust with victory. Because victory has the tendency to make us think that we're more than we are. Did you ever go to the carnival when you were a kid? I don't go to them anymore. Too many meth heads putting those things together and people <laughs> flying off. I don't, you ain't going to catch me at a carnival anymore. <laughs> Y'all pray for boldness on Sunday. I think I'm still walking in it, so it's fun. <laughs> but you go in the fun house, and there's always that wacky mirror that distorts what way you look. That's what pride is. Pride is the fun house mirror that makes you appear larger than you actually are. And so when we, when we experience a great victory, some of you may have just come through some amazing victories in the last year two years five years and maybe now man it's kind of drying up you're not feeling it and you're not seeing it what it's not as easy as it used to be listen don't panic don't think god's mad at you but he knows you and he may he knows just how much victory you can handle and still be like jesus and sometimes he says yeah you're not ready for that next level of victory yet but i'm gonna shepherd you i'm gonna get you there and so what does he do well after your victory he just lets you get thirsty in the desert for a little bit but he's not going to leave you there because he doesn't leave Samson here. So God brought, verse 19, God brought refreshment to Samson's weariness. So the Hebrew is different. Your Bible may say that he, he, he took the, well, let me just read it. It says, God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi and water came out from it. Some of the other translations say the water came out from the bone. It's the same word. Some of them are calling the place of the jawbone. Some of it's saying the actual jawbone. But when he drank it, his spirit returned and revived. Therefore, the name of it was Enhikori. And that means the fountain of the one who cried out. And it is at Lehi to this day. So all I want to say about this is that God is not going to leave you thirsty forever. God is not done with your victories. If he's humbling you, your best bet is just to go on and be humble. Just go ahead and cooperate with the humbling hand of God. Nobody has ever fought the humbling hand of God and won. Nobody. And so, you know, and listen, sometimes we don't know we're fighting him, but as you, as you age a little bit, as, you, as you're growing in the Lord, you start, you start realizing, okay, this isn't just circumstances. This isn't the devil. The devil's not getting credit for that. This is the Lord just kind of cordoning me off from some things for a little bit. I must need to be a pupil right now. I need to be a student right now. Father, what are you wanting to teach me? I can tell you're humbling me. I'm just going to get quiet, and I'm going to listen for you. And all of a sudden, as the water comes to Samson to refresh him physically, water in the Word of God is often uh, symbolic. It's a, it's a type of, of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And so I, I just believe that the Lord does that. He'll get you into a place and he'll start refreshing you spiritually through the Word, through the person and the activity of the Holy Spirit. And so you're not going to be dry forever. Some of you are like, man, I've been dry a long time. Well, it's not going to be forever unless you resist the humbling hand of God. It's hard when you've been on the mountaintop and all of a sudden you feel like you've come down a little bit. That's okay. God didn't say glorify the mountaintop. He said glorify the God that made the mountain. And he, he can be with you on the top of it, but he can also be with you if the mountain's on top of you. 
And so that's the key. The key is just say, okay, Lord, how do you want to refresh me? I just feel like God wants to encourage some people tonight. I don't have a clue who might be going through this, but uh, some of you think that your, your current season where it's a little dry, a little um, undefined, you're not real sure what he's doing, where he is, what he's saying, what's going on. Hey, you know what? He's entrusting you with some silence right now. I give you two pieces of advice, and then I'm just going to quit. The first one is, Listen for him to speak when he's ready to speak. But while he's not speaking, if he's being silent with you, try to remember the last thing he said to you. He's wanting you to remember the last thing you heard him say. And if you'll focus on that and just be still, he's going to bring some refreshment to you. And I'm going to tell you, when you get out of your desert, keep an eye out because I might be in mine. And I want you to come and preach this to me. I want you to come to me and say, hey, brother, I remember when you weren't in your desert and I was, and you told me, go ahead and preach my own sermons back to me. I don't mind. You told us to wait on the Lord and remember the last thing that he said, and then he'd start speaking when he's ready. If we'll do that, friends, I'm going to tell you, we're going to have encounters with God. We're going to have such a deepening gratitude and an abiding maturity because when, when you walk with him through a desert, you learn so much about him, and it's usually, let me tell you when it happens. In the desert, you don't always feel like you're learning it, but when you come out of the desert and you, a few steps down the road, you look back and you're like, oh, that's what he was doing. That's what he was saying. That's what he was teaching. Amen? Let's stand to our feet tonight. I'm going to do this. Could you bow your head and close your eyes? Two things. One, just that, that last word. If you feel like you're in that desert, could you just take a courageous moment and lift your hand? If you're in a desert, just hold it up. Yeah, I'm going to pray for you in just a second. And then the second thing would be if God opened your eyes to the enemy's activity against you, your family, your church and you recognize tonight oh he's being aggressive and I'm being casual could you lift your hand could you do that all right so father all of this just comes back to you Gabe's word hangs over this whole service it just comes back to your son it comes back to father son holy spirit for those in the desert lord I just ask you, in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ, who loves desert dwellers, give them the confidence and endurance to wait on you and give them the clarity to remember the last thing you might want them to remember, that thing you said a while back. Let them find that again. And Father, for those who've been awakened a little bit tonight to the aggressiveness of Satan and his demons, Lord, we are not afraid of your enemy. We know that if we walk in you and we resist him, Lord, that he flees from us. So Holy Spirit, tattoo that on our minds. Give us an image of demons getting out of our way as we walk in the Spirit, as we submit to you and resist the devil. Your authoritative word says that he runs away from us. So we claim that verse on our lives. 
And Father, we repent of any, even what we might consider a minor disobedience in our life that lets the devil in. Lord, we submit to you. We ask forgiveness for any and all sin. Cleanse and wash us by the blood of Jesus right now. Holy Spirit, do not be grieved. Do not be quenched. Come in your fullness on your people so that we can be a jawbone in the hand of God Almighty and defeat the enemy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.